Okay. Well, I for one am glad that we're not talking about fucking Nazis this week. Totally. That shit gets so fucking old so fast. It's a bit gauche at this point, yeah? Yeah. Yep. Now we just need to not acknowledge their existence for four years. Hopefully for four years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. But uh, we're back to our Forget About the Alamo series this this week. Oh, yeah. Back on our bullshit. Back on our history nerd <laughs> shit. Oh, yeah. And... Uh, I've got I've got some plant stuff in this one that I think is going to loop it in nicely with our environmental angles, those yeah. angles that we shoot for. I've been known to enjoy a plant or two in my day. <laughs> this is the compost bin of history. I'm your host, James, with your other host, <coughs> Jared. <laughs> Jared squeeze, squeezing it out between tokes. <laughs> on that fine, that fine Iowa tobacco. Oh yeah, that CBD. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, oh man, should we just jump right offs? into it? Uh, yeah, I guess. I don't know. Is there anything we need to address before we get going here? Oh, you're right. Yeah. Um, you know, because we've been talking about Nazis, fucking Nazis. You know, uh, we dropped that first Hitler pooch episode right after our first official forget about the Alamo, Alamo episode. And I've been looking at the, the listener numbers. I think maybe because I slipped it in there right behind that pooch episode that it hasn't been getting as much play. So I just want to refer people back to forget about the Alamo part one cousin fuck colonialism. <laughs> talking about New Spain, Joanna and Ferdinand, how they had to get the Pope's permission to have sex with each other <clears throat> and started colonizing the new world. Yeah. With a name like that, how could you not listen to it? <laughs> Naming's tough, man. It's the toughest part of doing this podcast. Is oh no, I, I like that. Name. <laughs> <clears throat> well, uh, Let's let's kick it off then. This is Forget About the Alamo, part two. The Plains Cottonwood, known to scientists as Populus deltoides, is one of North America's largest hardwood trees, averaging at full size over 9 feet in diameter, although I've seen some that are quite larger. I've seen them up to 20 feet in diameter, Jared. I believe you. There's one in Canton, South Dakota that is absolutely massive, right on the bank of the Big Sioux River. And you just said what, you know, my next thing is, is that these are associated with riparian areas. Riparian areas being those that are close to rivers, streams, really any kind of drainage way or water feature. Typically where water is moving, but not always. Yeah, I have a theory that like 
water witches back in the day just happened to know what like willows and cottonwoods look like and then they snapped like a willow branch off and acted like it led them to the water <laughs> when really they just were like well there's four willow trees let's dig here yeah they knew a few plants and they recognized these were ones that always are found near water oh yeah and and of course the whole life cycle of these trees depends upon flooding and uh you know when cottonwoods one thing if you live in the midwest of the north america and continent you probably know that there are these trees that put out these big puffs of cotton kind of midsummer yeah those are the seeds of the cottonwood yeah They do that, though, because they get carried downstream basically in like these little floating rafts when they land on water and they get washed up on mud banks and other areas that have just been like flooded sandbars. And then they take they take root there and that's where new stands of cottonwoods grow. So they really are reliant upon that flooding. And when you don't have flooding, like in a managed uh, waterway with a dam then you typically see fewer cottonwood, new, new, less new growth. But, you know, the large size of the cottonwood means that for early settlers and explorers in, you know, the Midwest of North America, this was a really important, like, way of identifying a water source from a long ways away. Because cottonwoods are massive, their leaves have a distinctive color, and you can recognize them from miles away from a good vantage point. And cottonwood is actually one of the softest hardwood trees. Yeah, not Meaning, much good for building, not much good for burning. Yeah, yeah, it's really, just like you said, it doesn't have a lot of economic usage. <clears throat> and so they tend to stay around because people don't really have reasons to cut them down. There's no economic benefit to doing it. Right. It's better to just have it be a nice shady tree to sit under. You can go cut down oak trees. Guarantee you, if there were economic benefit, there would be a shit, <laughs> uh, way fewer cottonwoods. Yeah, we might even reevaluate our dam uh, policies. Right, right. So, yeah, cottonwoods tend to hang around on the landscape, they're good identifiers. And a lot of these features that we've talked about, like them being soft wood, soft wood, hardwoods, the fact that they rely on disturbances like floods to regrow, these are all <clears throat> hallmarks of populous species. These are the poplars in the genus Populus in the plant family Salicaceae. Now, Jared, the Spanish word for poplar is alamo oh really yep because it tends to hang around huh alamo it's not much good for anything and it tends to hang around (laughs) so let's look at the people of new spain picking up from where we left off last time and then kind of filling in a few gaps in terms of the colonial history of uh, what is now much of Western North America, Mexico, and Central America. So just for Central America, which is going to be, you know, the area that will become like Mexico, right? As well as 
other states like Nicaragua, Guatemala, Belize, um, El Salvador. When this was all part of New Spain, um, that was kind of where a lot of the economic productivity was focused because of these <clears throat> Manila galleons and trade routes back to Europe. So before New Spain got there, there was 10 to 20 million people living in Central America in these Mayan and Aztec culture groups. Um, uh, I think the Olmecs were still around a little bit farther to the south. <coughs> but oh, I think the Olmecs were way before the Incans and the Mayans. I might be uh, misremembering that a little bit. I think you're right. Olmec civilization Weren't was... Weren't they like 12,000 years ago? I don't know if that was that far back, but it was. It, I think you're right. I think it was before then. Um, but yeah, there was uh, 10 to 20 million people living in this this uh, Central American region. And then after the Spaniards get there, you start to see a dramatic drop off. And it's not necessarily just because of violence or enslavement or genocide. It mainly has to do with a series of pandemics that are brought to the new world by Spaniards. One of the first is smallpox, which is actually introduced. <laughs> the actual Spanish flu. The, right. The real, the original Spanish flu, smallpox, <laughs> which was brought by one of Cortez's men during his conquest of Tenochtitlan. Uh, so that's 1520, 1521. About 20 years later, you have measles get there. There's another huge epidemic between 1545 and 1548. And then another, about 30 years after that, you have typhoid fever, typhus, get to the New World and New Spain, 1576 to 1581. Now, these mainly affect the New World regions of New Spain because you remember that Philippi the Philippines, parts of Indonesia, these are also New Spain. But the Muslims got there first, like we said last time. So the people in these areas had already been exposed to all these diseases. Whereas in Central America, that original population of 10 to 20 million people drops off to about 2 million people around the time span of 1600. So it took 80 years. Within about 80 years, you see the population drop by... What is that like? A shitload. A shitload, yeah. From <laughs> 90%. By 90%, right. So you have to think about New Spain as kind of being like a ghost town in a way, right? That as settlers are coming from Spain, they're finding, you know, deserted agricultural fields and farms that are just empty because the people who once were keeping them up have died. Yeah, they died because they were lazy and couldn't keep up with their fields. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that did a lot of the heavy lifting for colonialism, right? Just just having these epidemics occur. And that also influenced then how New Spain developed in its attitude towards the native populations. Because remember, mm. they have the encomienda system. These people who are dying in these plagues are the ones who you need to build your new society, right? So this is exactly like Europe after the plague. <clears throat> it, very similar. I mean, in the fact, this is only, what, like 100, 200 years after the Black Death yeah, of Europe? Yeah, wasn't that like mid-1300s? Right. 
Yeah. Uh, It's just been, you know, and the Black Death, the bubonic plague, uh, interestingly, well, we might have to, that one actually would come to the New World much later and from the other direction. So kind of an interesting story with that. But uh, yeah, so there's a huge population drop off. And interestingly, as we said last time, all the people who were living in these areas were subjects to the Spanish crown. And that was a precedent established way back in the 1490s by girl boss of Castile, Isabella. Now, one of her most famous girl boss moves was she actually imprisoned Christopher Columbus. Because way back in the 1490s... <clears throat> For any of his crimes, or did he just not make enough money? <laughs> well, he had taken 1,200 slaves and brought them back from the New World. And Isabella, because, again, she had determined that all these people were her subjects, said that Christopher Columbus was basically just enslaving her, her people with no cause. So she actually imprisoned him and then... Uh, started distributing these like contracts to new world explorers other than Christopher Columbus. So his, his slaving, his early on slaving in Hispaniola actually led to his imminent demise. So basically the way this slavery worked was that you could have slaves Owning slaves was okay, but taking slaves was the problem. And this was pretty typical of a lot of Roman Catholic areas in this time period. <clears throat> so how do you how do you get slaves? Here's the that's the question, right? Uh, <laughs> well, you can't get them the way that I thought you usually get them. Apparently, well, you can if they're if they're taken in conquest, if they're taken like the captured warriors, right? Like the people who are being conquered and who are fighting against you, you can enslave them. Okay. Okay. Now, but it's only as a direct result of the war. Okay. Of your war efforts. So once you beat them, you can't take any more. Exactly. Once you, once you beat them, you can't take any more, but likewise you can buy slaves from other people who have taken the slaves. Right. So if there's some other, you know, tribe or group or so slavery is totally cool. You just can't be a slaver. Right. You just need to outsource the actual taking of slaves. And is that just because like you getting free slaves is not fair and like degrades well, the value of the average slave or something crazy like that? I mean, I think you got to look at it from the Roman Catholicism viewpoint. I think it's that's the that's the sin. The sin is not owning a slave because you might be a very good slave owner, right? The sin is in depriving another person of their freedom through no fault of their own. If they're fighting against you in war. Okay. If you, someone else did it, that's fine. You can buy them, but you can't bring that mark upon your soul by just saying you're a slave. Now come along, you know, that's, that's the sin, right? I mean, I guess it kind of makes sense. I mean, in, in a in a dumb way, it does make sense. Yeah, right? it sounds like non-aggression, <laughs> fucking bullshit, whatever that is. Well, it's like carbon credits, right? Like I can destroy the environment, but so long as I'm not actually 
Well, maybe it's not exactly like that. <laughs> it's all right. You tried. I tried. <laughs> it's like the opposite of that, I guess. Right. Um, but yeah, so you still have to, you still have some slaves in New Spain taken from uh, basically indigenous people in the conquest, the warriors who fight against you, as well as other indigenous people who already own slaves. You can buy those slaves from them. And what that means is that there is like a limited but small population of slaves because you still have the encomienda system. And even then, the enslaved still have some legal rights. Like in New Spain, at places where slaves were doing work, the government could show up and do an inspection and make sure they were being treated fairly. Yeah. Didn't happen very often. Pretty much every country in the history or every like civilization in the history of the world that had slavery did it more fairly than the U.S. did. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's going to be a major theme for what we're going to talk about Even the Ottomans. in the next episode. Even the Ottomans, like 400 right. years before U.S. slavery, even they treated their slaves better. Right. So uh, let's <clears throat> let's just talk about how slavery shook out then in New Spain. Um, like we said, the encomienda system was very effective in areas where there were already lots of native people. But your depopulations from disease means that you have potentially productive lands where there just aren't anyone to to work those those resources well, you're gonna have to, to extract import some labor. Yes, exactly. <clears throat> that's quite a problem you got there. <clears throat> Unproductive right. land. That's not not exactly what we're looking for here. Right. So, uh Holy Roman Emperor Charles the 1st in 1517 says that slaves could still be taken in conquest or bought in New Spain. And uh, what that meant was that in areas where there was lots of mining and in areas where there was lots of sugarcane production, you had also slavery because those typically were areas where there weren't already a lot of indigenous people or the indigenous people would not do the work via the encomienda system. I was going to say mining and sugarcane production, two of the best jobs that were being created at the time. Right. So if you're an if you're a, you know, indigenous person who is, you know, having to put up your labor for free, you have very little like I mean, the the work is so brutal and harsh working in a mine in this time period or even today or working in a in sugarcane that basically they would just not do it. You know, there was huge resistance and that led to the importation of lots of slaves from Africa. So let's let's pause and talk about sugarcane a little bit, our other plant. So sugarcane is a grass. It's actually a very tall grass. It can grow like 12 feet tall. Is it like a rhizome? It gets, yeah, it's rhizomatous and it has this very thick stalk. And within the stalk is what, you know, we extract as sugar. It's like a swamp plant, isn't it? Yeah, it grows in uh, basically subtropical and tropical areas. It's actually native to Southeast Asia, and uh, the sugarcane species Saccharum officinarum was one of the canoe plants that the Polynesian people would um, carry with them as they explored, like the Southeast Asian, you know, archipelagos and the islands of the Pacific Ocean. 
fast growing food source. Exactly. It was one of many, it was, it was, uh, they were great practicers of permaculture because as they would be casting about, you know, sailing sometimes thousands of miles in directions unknown, they would bring, um, these plants and animals, which they could just basically plant and let go wild in these areas and then have a assured food source when they return to them later on. That makes a lot of sense. (laughs) Yeah, we should, I don't know, we should try that. That's, it's crazy. (laughs) But, uh, so, um, Muslim rulers had actually brought sugarcane all the way to, uh, southern Iberia. So, sugarcane production was occurring in Spain prior to colonization. And it was one of the first, like, cash crops to be grown in the Canary Islands, which was, like, Spain's first attempt at colonizing. So, Sugarcane, of course, was on the second trip that Christopher Columbus took across the Atlantic, and very quickly he had established sugarcane plantations in the Caribbean. And this basically formed the one side of what came to be known as the Triangle Trade, another important global trade route of this time period, <clears throat> along with the Manila Galleons. So it's like a it's like a sedge then. Uh, it's a it's a true grass. It's uh, poaceae. What's uh, what's that really invasive, what is it, like Phragmites or something like that? Yeah, it actually looks a lot like Phragmites, um, which is a uh, common reed, basically. Okay, so it's yeah. like that. It grows like yeah. that? Yeah. So it takes, like, yeah. it takes like four years and you have like some serious sugarcane production going on. Well, and it's a C4 plant, which means that it's one of the most efficient photosynthesizers out there. Interestingly, um, about 1% of the total sunlight energy that hits a sugarcane plant is actually transferred into sugar, which is an incredible return on, on the investment. So you're telling me all this imperialism is just like sugarcane and maize's ploy to <laughs> global domination? Uh, basically, I mean... Now sugarcane is uh, by weight by by weight volume the the biggest like produced crop worldwide more than anything else is sugarcane and in all of these areas that we talked about Southeast Asia South America the Caribbean Africa huge sugarcane plantations all over the global South where there is a still a labor pool that will service them in. Areas of the global north where they used to grow sugarcane, like in Florida, Louisiana, um, <clears throat> Spain, the labor pool no longer exists and is no longer marketably feasible to produce sugarcane in those areas. Okay, so once again, this is like people going out, probably with like their bare feet and stuff, harvesting Phragmites? Basically, yeah. Oh um, my god, that sounds awful. Right. It's <laughs> especially uh, like closer to the equator where like the mosquitoes are giant and right. Yes. And it has to grow in these swampy wet areas. And on top of that, the harvesting and refinement of sugarcane involves basically boiling it down like f- in five separate stages until you get to molasses. And that's extremely hot work. You have to have someone turning these like huge cauldrons of, yeah, of hot molasses. People are just getting burned alive by boiling molasses. 
Right. And this is already where it's like a hundred degrees out during the day anyway. Right. And you're having to stand over a vat of boiling sugar and turn it while someone else, some other slave is probably changing out the coals underneath it. Brutal, brutal work. Um, and then, you know, a lot of that would get shipped to like New England, places like Boston, where it was made into rum. Yeah, where they and have then, no other source of sugar. <laughs> There's not just trees well, everywhere that you can get sugar out of <laughs> without even killing them. Well, maybe not at the same rate to meet demand back in Europe, right? Because then. I mean, all those pirates, they got—they drink a lot of rum around this time period, right? The Royal Navy, they're all getting rum. So, uh, yeah, sugar from the Caribbean and rum from New England gets shipped back to England. In England, they basically are drinking the rum. They're eating the sugar, distributing it to Europe. Then uh, ships would take manufactured goods from England. Think like, uh, you know, cloth, guns parts and ship those to West Africa where other colonies were being established around this time. And then they would be taking slaves from those intermediary, you know, outsourced slavers in West Africa. A lot of times these were like tribes that were on the coast with more access to guns and uh, markets who would then go in and just like slave raid on their more remote uh, neighbors in the inland. They would capture slaves. Those slaves would then be shipped to the Caribbean to work in these plantations in areas of uh, colonial domination by France, England, and Spain as well. So that that was the triangle trade. It was sugar, uh, manufactured goods, slaves. So even though slaves were being brought into New Spain... A lot of them were going to the areas where sugar was produced, which was largely, I mean, fairly limited within what is now Mexico, right? Because one of the things we have to acknowledge is that what we're you know, heading towards, the Battle of the Alamo, is not between the United States or the Republic of Texas and New Spain. It's between the Republic of Texas and Mexico, right? A lot of those sugar-producing areas that were getting most of the slaves in New Spain were not in what is now mainland Mexico. Now, there were some of those areas. However, because you still had indigenous populations that were living amongst settler areas and colonizer areas, it was very easy for slaves to escape and join indigenous communities, which they did often. Much, much easier than it was in the United States or the 13 colonies at this time. And so basically slavery wasn't really a permanent condition in New Spain uh, because you could potentially work and earn your freedom or you could escape and live just off the land or with other people who might take you in. Man, so if you were a slave back then, you better really hope you're getting sent. The farther south, the better, it sounds like. Definitely, yeah, yeah. Um. And interestingly, pretty pretty much right off the bat, the the Catholic Church, not the Catholic Church in its hierarchical power structure, 
but their their boots on the ground in New Spain, the Dominican friars, these members of these holy orders, they were actually pretty much against slavery from day one. And credit credit where it's due, these guys were some of the first humanists, right? Like this is where the that tradition started out was from you know this this type of work. They actually were seeking Dominican friars were seeking legal protections for indigenous people all the way back in the 1500s. And when African slaves were brought in, uh, these Dominican friars actually like witnessed that they were, they were being treated even worse than the indigenous slaves. And many of them like had to repent because they had like actually like asked to have the black slaves brought in. Then they felt terrible about it. Um, In 1639, the Pope, Urban VIII, actually prohibited slavery in colonies of Spain and Portugal, but that did not apply (laughs) to African slaves. Oh, okay. I was going to say, apparently that didn't catch on. Right. Right. Um, And again, you still have these mining areas, too, which were largely in drier, more remote parts of what is now Mexico. And so in those areas, you actually have a mix of indigenous wage labor. These are the first, like, I mean, along with, like, cowboys, these are some of the first employees in these areas, as well as black slaves working in these mines. But now here's, here's the important thing, right? For what becomes Mexico, the overall number of slaves per capita is remarkably small when compared to the 13 colonies. I'm just going to throw some numbers out here for comparison. In 1570, only 50 years after the conquest of Tenochtitlan, you have about 20,000 African slaves in New Spain. 1646, about 100 years later, a little bit after Pope Urban VIII outlawed slavery in colonies of Spain and Portugal, that number has increased to 35,000 total. But by 1810... When our story with the Alamo really kicks off, only about 10,000 African slaves remain in New Spain. Okay, well, I'm pretty sure George Washington owned more than that. Right, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, well, the reason for that drop is because, again, slavery was not a permanent condition, unlike the way that it was in the 13 colonies, where not only was it a permanent condition for the slave, but also their children. So what you tell me is New Spain just didn't create racism. Well, I mean, it's it's I think it's Protestant racism versus Catholic racism. Okay. So Catholic it, racism is like just a little bit kinder. I I mean, if we look at the historical record, I think so. I mean, they didn't do the Holocaust, that was the Protestants. They I mean, they did the Inquisition pretty bad pretty bad but uh, there's no but pretty bad <laughs> I mean, it was pretty bad pretty bad the holocaust though i mean if you look at the way that that gets ramped up with, okay like, i was just clerical say, Protestant like, fervor. like the, the spanish inquisition they weren't like straight up executing most of the people they were just like expelling them yeah most a lot of people were being expelled some people are being tortured sure but yeah like you could you'd probably just be expelled um and and like what we're seeing here the very just the economic reality was such that 
you know, if you were a Spain in, uh, you know, in if you were a Spain, if you were a slave in Veracruz. <laughs> I was going to say what? Yeah. <laughs> if you were a slave in Veracruz, you know, just five miles down the road, there mm-hmm. might be an indigenous community that is unbothered by any of this bullshit that you're doing on the sugar plantation. And you might think to yourself, all I need to do is just get over there. And, you know, they might vouch for me. Who knows what will happen, right? Yeah. But there, it's, or you could even say, I'm going to work extra hours beyond what, uh, you know, my master has me doing already. I'm going to start saving some money and I'm going to buy my freedom, you know, which was, again, something that was uh, a very real option. I mean, that doesn't sound like the worst deal I've ever heard. Well, it was more like, you know, ancient Roman slavery. I mean, right? that's that's a better deal than most Americans get today. <laughs> Isn't it? That you can cut and run and try something else if yeah. you want to. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, you have options? Right. Yeah, so... Uh, Maybe all those conservative monsters are right. Slavery is not that bad. Yeah, and I mean, but again, it was happening in New Spain... Definitely was happening in, I mean, New Spain wasn't like the only Spanish colony because Spain also controlled like Rio del Plata, um, basically most of the Inca, of the Andes. Well, I mean, slavery has been happening everywhere throughout all of human history. Yeah. Yeah. But just in what becomes Mexico, it was not that bad. That was what I'm saying. As now slavery let's, let's, goes. <laughs> as slavery goes. And let's compare that to what was happening over in the United States of the 13 colonies at this time period. So for just another last point, 1793 census in New Spain found between 6,000 and 10,000 Africans. Okay. 1770. So six years before the American War of Independence there were 187,000 slaves in Virginia alone. (laughs) 10,000, 10,000 in new Spain, 187,000 in just Virginia in the overall 13 colonies in 1770. Again, six years before the war of independence, you had almost half a million African slaves. And you have to think about the economic consequences of that and the development of the United States versus the just economic realities of those six to 10,000 people in New Spain at this time. The, the systems were set up in radically different ways is what I'm saying. Let's look at a couple of our, fa- our beautiful founding fathers, Jared. For their their hot takes on slavery, uh, you mentioned Spoiler George alert, Washington. They're big fans. <laughs> big fans. Big fans. Yeah. George Washington uh, famously, quote unquote, held his slaves in great contempt. He was <laughs> constantly <laughs> he was constantly mad at them. He was constantly <laughs> haranguing them for not working hard enough. He expected all of his slaves to work as hard as any of his paid staff, basically. Um, and well, it's not why like, they? why wouldn't they? Well, I mean, but the thing is, is it's not like abolition wasn't a thing at this time. There were already the seeds of abolition movements, you know, growing in these areas because abolitionism is also a font of Protestantism. 
right? Like that is one of the positive offshoots of Protestant theology is abolition theology. Uh, nonetheless, yeah, George Washington. Well, I mean, they basically just want to turn them from real slaves into like debt slaves. Well, right. Yeah. I mean, for the abolitionists, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe not them specifically, but Protestantism, like as an entity. Right. You know, the individual relationship with God as such kind of, uh, it allows you more leeway for interpretation. And it could be one that says that, you know, justifies your belief in slavery, or it could be one that says that, you know, uh, this is wrong. We should actually all just be part of the market, right? Yeah. Well, it's bad for the market if you got a bunch of people that don't have any money. Right. Don't yeah. tell the conservatives that. But uh... So, yeah, George Washington had lots of slaves up there at Mount Vernon. I'll also point out Thomas Jefferson, who was actually the start of the pedophile deep state government conspiracy in America. Oh, yeah. Really, we should be calling him Thomas Jeffstein. Because basically he was the same guy. <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, Thomas Jefferson famously had a 14-year-old uh, slave named mm-hmm. Sally Hemings who he raped and impregnated when she was 14. And, I mean, that's that's just Jeffrey Epstein shit. Like, but he's still glorified in Hamilton for some reason. I don't fucking know why. I mean, neither of those things were wrong back then no they were wrong back then i mean again the abolition movement was a thing people understood that it was wrong i think thomas jefferson knew that what he was doing was wrong and i think he did it anyway i mean they had they had the bible like they could have read shit that would have been like oh this is bad of course the bible also has lots of stuff that says why it's good you know i'm saying like the zeitgeist of the time the mainstream ideals were that it's okay for you to take a 14 year old bride and it's okay for you to impregnate slaves. Cause that's your property. I, I understand what you're saying, but I don't think that, uh, I don't think you're framing it in a, in a, in a fair way. What do you mean? Because, um, <clears throat> It's not your property, right? Your slave is not your property? Yeah. You know, like, that's my framing of it, right? I would say, no, that's an independent person. Well, yeah, but you're not a slave. Well, and what's Sally Hemings' framing of it, right? Doesn't matter. She's a slave. No, but it does matter because she's a person. Well, yeah, obviously. I'm just saying, like, it was legal and not... Like, it was legal and seen as good by a lot of people that he did stuff like that. I I don't I don't think that uh, it was seen as good and um yeah but know, it if was we not, look at if we look was, at New Spain it was seen as not good for different reasons than what you and I might think. In other parts of the world, mm-hmm. like in New Spain, you had actual like legal protections they weren't they weren't like enforced regularly oh yeah totally but nobody but that shit would have been considered illegal yeah but nobody from virginia sees that shit you know i'll acknowledge what you're saying that 
oh, times were different 200 years ago. No, I'm, I'm not saying any of that's good or right. I'm saying that look how abhorrent this is that that was seen as good and right. Well, am I wrong to say that, you know, because that was seen as good and right, we're still dealing with these problems today? No, not at all. I think we're saying the same thing. Okay. I'm saying, like, you need to understand that these things were seen as good and right in this area. Well, yeah, uh, Thomas Jefferson. The abolitionists were a fringe group. Oh, and yeah, I wanted to also point to the mm-hmm. recent dollop episode, uh, the gentlemen's riots for slavery that were occurring in Boston, kind of around this this time frame of events. Yeah. But, but basically, kind of like what we saw at the Capitol, you had people, you know, the, the small rich people getting together, the slave-owning yeah. cast, to riot in, for the protection of their right to own slaves in the 18, 18 teens, 20s, 30s. Yeah, it's because more, it's more they were like scared the, of those abolitionists. It's more like the anti-mask riots. Yeah, I think it's similar. Um, but yeah, so I, w- I will draw a distinction, though. And I think this is a very telling distinction because when the revolutionary movement comes around in Mexico, albeit a few years after it does in America, by the 18, around 1810... Basically, a prime directive of all the revolutionaries against New Spain in Mexico was the abolition of slavery. They saw it as a top priority. And I think that basically speaks to this division that we're seeing. The revolutionaries in America, they were seeking to entrench this system that they profited from enormously. Yeah, they were the guys that the people in South America were like (laughs) rallying against. Right. Yeah. They saw <coughs> they saw the turning of the tide. And the people in South America looked at it as a horrible, you know, stain upon the human condition, which it, which it is. It continues to be. Wow, they just didn't have the right lumps on their skulls to see how good it was. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so for all these these different factors uh that we've talked about already, the population of New Spain was pretty dynamic particularly in what would become western north america and modern mexico um so for 1793 remember this is around the the birth of santa Ana, our first main player um you basically had a few different regional differences within new spain uh some areas of new spain retained predominantly indigenous populations this was like one of the positive side effects of Hernan Cortez getting that massive, you know, Valley of Oaxaca estate was that it basically kept new settlers from going there. And now Oaxaca remains today one of the most, uh, you know, populous, indigenous, populous states in Mexico. So it's like a wildlife refuge for indigenous people. Yeah. Uh so these are generally in the south and east of current Mexico where you had still predominantly indigenous populations. Yeah, places like Oaxaca, Veracruz, uh, the Yucatan, and Plaxcala. Now, interestingly, California, what we now think of as California, was also this way around this time, still predominantly indigenous populations. 
Uh, some areas had more European settlers, and these were generally the more northern and westerly areas. These were people coming from Spain and also Germany and other mainland European countries who were setting up cattle ranches and running mining operations, right? These would become Nuevo León, Coahuila, Sonora, Guadalajara, northern and western Mexico. But you also had lots of mixed populations. These were called the mestizos. These are peoples who were descended from a mixture of indigenous and uh, European stock. Bernal Diaz's kids. Right, yeah. And these were generally in the melting pot of central Mexico, around Mexico City, uh, Zacatecas, also Baja, California, which is kind of central Mexico if you're looking at it from a lateral, like a north-south perspective. Uh, Durango. And interestingly, New Mexico had a big um, mestizo population around this time. And then there were some areas that just didn't have a lot of people at all. Areas like Texas, Oklahoma, and Colorado. Now, it wasn't that they really didn't have people, but rather that the people who were there tended to move around a lot, right? Because this is like the the Plains Indian uh, places. Yeah. <clears throat> it's so dry that you got to move around. Exactly. You have to follow herd animals and um, the, the, the water cycle so that you know where to be at different times of the year. And um, nah, you should just build a big ass condo. And- <laughs> well, what that means though, is that you basically can't run an encomienda system there, right? Because these people will just, get up and walk away or you know by this time they all had had horses from the early conquistadores so they would just get on their horses and ride away like um i always think about like when the plains indigenous peoples like got the horse and i I think about that scene in the movie airplane when the dude goes to africa and he like tries to teach them basketball (laughs) (laughs) yeah like all these conquistadors show up with horses and then like the indigenous just like grab them and you know start doing amazing (laughs) amazing tricks and stuff i don't know it's probably a little bit playing into stereotypes crazy horse tricks yeah i probably shouldn't i probably that's probably a little bit racist oh for god's sake take one of my pc points from me who are you hurting with that But, yeah, I mean, obviously, it, there is truth there. Like, the indigenous people with the horse, you know, their mobility became, uh, you know, it, was, it, it became their lifestyle, right? Yeah. What had already, always been a lifestyle, which was that of seasonal movement, kind of got amplified. Yeah, well, there's an alternative history for you. What if the Plains natives had had horses for 400 years before the settlers got there? Man, the disease would still be a factor, but I think because it represents an introduction well, okay. of a new. I'm saying more like if like yeah. the horse never went extinct in right the like what Eastern Hemisphere. Well, it's so interesting for like a Marxist conception of history because the horse is like a huge productive force. Oh, of course, when you get that right. It's, it's called horsepower, right, and. If you think about the, you know, 
the abilities for indigenous warfare on the high plains in particular on horseback, I mean, I, 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 I think it could have gone very differently. You know what I want to know? What? How come like the Lakota didn't just ride bison? Um, well, I can answer that too, actually. Bison don't have an easily exploitable social hierarchy. Okay. Same with cows. They typically don't have like a clear leader. Well, you can totally ride cows. You can, but not very effectively. (laughs) Have you ever seen the guy on the buffalo? (laughs) All right. Well, I'm sure that some people can ride cows and (laughs) buffalo. But things that the animals that people form working relationships with are always those that have clear social hierarchies that we can insert ourselves into. And with buffaloes, grizzly bears, those types of things, um, we just can't do that. Uh, we can domesticate some of these types of animals, but to be able to like work with them and use them and share a common goal, uh, that's, that's a different matter. But yeah, I think like if you just think about the productive forces of having horses, I mean, um, Kim Stanley Robinson wrote a book about this, uh, a thousand years of rice and salt, basically talking about like, what if, you know, productive forces had emerged, um, that consolidated capital in the new world before or prior to the colonization, And that basically, yeah, like the Iroquois Confederation would have like basically turned back, you know, the the stream of colonizers that the Aztecs, if the Aztecs could have fielded cavalry, you know, even without gunpowder, that would have been a a huge coup for, for their efforts. We'd probably be in like nuclear hell now. I mean, I don't know. Um, a thousand years of rice and salt. I've been meaning to read it, but I need to check that out. I don't know. It seems like the more technologically advanced you get, the more like just cruel you become. Yeah. It is an interesting counterfactual to play with though. That, and I think, yeah, horses, huge technological advancement. Like if the Aztecs had horses, they would have just taken over all of South America. Maybe so. Yeah. Um, They definitely would have expanded. Well, that's the thing is it wasn't so much about imperial conquest as it was about, um, like just resources and yeah, but if you have better ability to find and transport new resources, I mean, right. You know? Yeah, no, that's a good point. But, but yeah, so you have these areas up here, up here where I'm at in Colorado. (laughs) Come on, paradox. Get on it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) that's a that would be a fucking rad rad strategy game totally yeah yeah like up here in colorado you have um the cheyenne south of me here in oklahoma you have like the comanches and these were yeah um a mobile people who weren't gonna just hang around and build a fucking mine for you if you asked them nicely right so (laughs) What's the deal with like the naming of wilderness areas? Like is the Comanche national wilderness just like where they used to live? 
I mean, they were they were in the area. Yeah. And like Cheyenne is where the Cheyenne people used to live. Right. And now they're just gone, but like the land is still there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, whenever we do an episode on Oklahoma, <laughs> oh boy, <laughs> Oklahoma has a way crazier history than I even remembered from history Oklahoma. class. Oklahoma. <laughs> Dude, every time I ever heard about Oklahoma, it was just like the most horrific shit going down. Yeah. Like in American history class, Oklahoma comes up with like the Trail of Tears and then it comes up during the Dust Bowl mm-hmm. and it comes up during like Sherman's fucking march and uh, right. Just every time horrific shit's happening, that's the only time you hear about Oklahoma. Right. (laughs) So, yeah, um, Texas, Oklahoma, Colorado. These were northern, northeastern New Spain. And because you had low native populations, it was not useful for encomienda systems. And the non-sedentary people were difficult to control difficult to find yeah difficult to find and difficult to control so how did the spanish expand into these areas they basically had a three-part system which was to build a presidio which was a fort a pueblo a town and a missione or a mission excuse me the mission the church right with those three things, they basically would build these little outposts in these these rural areas and expand basically because, I mean, again, you know, there are other Europeans who are claiming these these territories. And now you have, you know, the the United States after 1776, you know, tenting their fingers and greedily looking across the Appalachians at uh, what lies beyond, right? So if you're Spain, you're like, we got to get some motherfuckers up there so that they know it's it's Spain, right? And that's why you have your your missions and forts and pueblos. And so, yeah, basically, again, the Roman Catholic Church steps in as an administrative arm of government in New Spain. And these Dominican friars and Franciscan friars uh, are a lot of the ones doing the exploring for the the god part of gold glory god by this point you know they know that the gold might be out there but it's kind of secondary they're just trying to make sure that they can claim the territory so you get a spanish mission set up and you get some priests and you convert a few of the local indigenous people to live there year round um and this is actually a remnant of the Reconquista relations, because you remember who was in charge of purging the Muslim heresy as you know, the the Catholics were regaining the Iberian peninsula. It was the Roman Catholic church. So they're basically in lockstep. A fun example of that is in Florida. Of course, Florida, Spanish colony, actually the first uh, establishment, the first and continuing establishment in the United States is St. Augustine. And it was actually founded as Spain rushed to destroy Fort Caroline, a French fort near modern Jacksonville, Florida. Now the French at this time were Huguenot Protestants. 
And so the Spanish basically landed, established St. Augustine, and then rushed up to Jacksonville so that they could kill all of the Protestants who had established themselves there. And when they did, they were there was a sign hung below the, the hanged Frenchmen that said, hanged not as Frenchmen, but as Lutherans. So again, it's <clears throat> lockstep with religious warfare, right? Um, by 1610, you have what is now the That's kind oldest... of genius. Right, yeah. Then you can go just when... like kill Frenchmen without it being an international incident. You can just be like, sorry, bro, uh, holy war. Yep. Yep. Uh, what do they call it in Europa Universalis? Um, when you pay 500 ducats and you get to be a uh, defender of the faith. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it's interesting that the oldest continuous established settlement in America was founded so that Spaniards could more efficiently kill Lutherans. Uh, about 40, 50 years after that, 1610, you have the oldest state capital established in the United States, Santa Fe, down in New Mexico, which even then was still the capital of New Mexico, except then it was New Mexico comma new spain before it was new mexico comma new mexico (laughs) you see what i'm saying yeah it's always been called santa fe and new mexico right it's just uh the leaseholder has changed yes a few times um again santa fe was ostensibly an outpost for the conversion of natives and for catholicism to basically do the heavy lifting of Spanish colonialism. Uh, 1659, we're moving steadily eastward. And that's kind of one of the interesting things about New Spain. is settlement in the northern part really happens from west to east. Uh, So by 1659, you have the Mission of the North Pass, founded by a Franciscan friar of St. Anthony's Ilk on the Rio Grande, which is now the present-day city of Juarez. And then in 1691, so a group of explorers the, and missionaries. Yes. The new Spanish frontier moved the opposite direction of the like colonies frontier. It did. Basically, it did. So yeah. like New Spain sort of already did most of the hard part. Uh yeah. Yeah. In these areas, it had. You know, if you think about just like, yeah, the physical direction of settlement, you think about it starting around Veracruz, Mexico City, down there in southern modern Mexico. Then it shoots over to the west coast, the Pacific coast of Mexico, moves up uh, along, you know, Baja, California, into California, New Mexico, where there are rich Spanish and gold reserves, and then cuts back to the east through the plains where there are less valuable resources. The English colonists really just fucking, they just had, everybody just had horseshoes up their asses, didn't they? Oh, they yeah, they were such clerks about it, man. They just I mean, got, I'm just saying like, they just got lucky in so many different ways that had nothing to do with anything they did. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In, in the like sense everyone that... else literally like with slavery, just like top to bottom, 
taking mm-hmm. this land from like the French and New Spain and, and the all Spanish, this. Yeah, they literally well, when... just like benefited from everyone else's work. I mean, and while it's talking real... about no free lunches. Well, and it's really flagrant, like with California in particular, because California basically, by the time it becomes an American state, you know, in the 1840s, um, or not a state, but an American territory, they essentially had an established European, you know, like ruling class. And because of good old fashioned, you know, American racism, uh, that ruling class just looked like everybody else when all of the, you know, Protestant white people started showing up. And so the, the disenfranchisement was even more like on the nose for all of these like old, old Spanish families who had like established their, you know, haciendas in, in California and New Mexico when they basically were just, you know, ripped off left and right and had their land stolen out from under them by the, new wave of European settlers. I mean, not like they didn't do it to, you know, the indigenous people beforehand though. So yeah. In 1691, a group of explorers and missionaries visited a Paella settlement on what became known as the St. Anthony river. Paella settlement settlement. Like, Oh, excuse me. Is that the name of the settlement? Oh, um, there was a group of indigenous people who were occupying, who were living near a river in this area. And the indigenous people were known as the Payeas. Oh, okay. Yeah. So on June 13th, which is the feast day of St. Anthony, this group of Franciscan friar explorers found this Payea settlement on a river and they named it the san antonio river and the settlement became known as san antonio so on feast day they found the paella natives Mm -hmm. that's right okay (laughs) 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 and again we're still moving steadily east i don't know what that means but it means it's got to mean something (laughs) well paella is like a fruit right like no paella is like a amazing like Oh yeah, it's like, like a seafood dish. It's like a Hispanic slash yeah, like Mexican, like seafood rice dish. Th- this is not spelled the same way. This is P A Y A Y A. Oh okay. Whereas you're talking about P A E L L A. Yes, right? totally. Yeah. Right. So yeah, on Paella Paella's <laughs> feast day. <laughs> uh, yeah, so yeah, they named the river for St. Anthony, and the, the settlement became known as San Antonio. But again, it's on a river, and remember where cottonwoods typically occur? Near rivers. Yes. Right. Alamos. Uh, that's, that's for cottonwoods, not for rivers. All right, so then about like 20 years later, you finally have... Uh, the farthest east settlement of New Spain proper, not counting Florida, which is, um, I'm going to try and pronounce this phonetically, Nacogdoches. Although nowadays Texans just call it Nacogdoches. Nacogdoches. Nacogdoches, which is in East Texas. Arrivederci. (laughs) 
So Nacogdoches was founded finally in 1716. And now this is actually, you're basically, that's the border of Louisiana, right? That's on the border of Louisiana. But that's still 400 miles from the nearest Spanish mission at that point. But it's right next to French Louisiana. And the whole reason you build it there is so that you can say, hey, guys, everything back here is Spain. You guys are France over there, but back here we're Spain, and we have a we have a city settlement presidio here to prove it. So by seventeen eighteen, we're kind of in the you know really starting to like catapult downhill period of colonialism. Now, uh, Spain is looking to connect those settlements in East Texas with. Uh, you know, and it's also got Louisiana land holdings now from the, you know, the Bourbon monarchy's fusion. So the governor of Spanish Texas, Martin de Alarcon, orders the establishment of way stations in the Texas interior for people traveling from Nacogdoches down to the Northern Passage, which is Juarez, down to Mexico City. And on May 1st, 1718, a group led by Alarcon himself erected a mud and debris hut by the headwaters of the San Antonio River. And that would serve as a new mission. All right. Wait, is that just saying he built this thing out of like trash and dirt? Yep. Yep. That's right. He built, uh, basically, yeah, mud, mud, trash, dirt. He whacked it together and created a new church for converting the local um, Cohiltecans to Catholicism. Well, sounds like my kind of priest. And this would become known as the Alamo Mission because of the many poplar trees that were nearby on the San Antonio River. All right. So it's actually it's actually like the Battle of the Cottonwood. That's in, awesome. In a way. And right? it's, it's built out of cottonwoods and mud? Basically. So you, and, and that's why well, it was dude, destroyed. All right. So you, <laughs> so you tell, like, without knowing anything else, just based off of that information, it never rains here, does it? <laughs> very seldom. Very seldom, <laughs> yeah. I mean, on the coast of Texas, it's actually very wet and swampy. But where San Antonio is, you're far enough in, t- in the inland. You're out of the woods. You're out of the eastern woodlands. You're basically in the plains. And, yeah, very different. We're talking, like, you know, I'm just dry saying, land, based pasture. on your building materials, that yeah. thing would have eroded and decayed immediately if it rains there. Yeah. Well, and so it only lasted about three years, and then it deca- then yeah, it was destroyed <laughs> actually by a hurricane. Yeah. Because that's the thing; you're still close enough to the coast, you can catch a hurricane off of the Gulf yeah. of Mexico. Just, uh, just awful, awful <laughs> building materials. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, now, interestingly, in 1722, a presidio, a fort, was built about one mile away. The, the actual fort is not where any of the ensuing action would go down. Everything happens around the mission. And that's because of the power of the Catholic Church as an administrative body. So right when it started off, it was populated by about between three and five native converts. So out of the presumably dozens or hundreds of indigenous people in the area, the Catholics got like, like three of them. So, you know, it's a start. <laughs> 
And the natives were like, yeah, those guys are fucking weird anyway. Get them out of here. Who cares? You guys just want to like stay in that same spot year round? Yeah. Even though there are hurricanes and shit? It's fucking weird, man. You don't even have a broken leg. What are you talking about? <laughs> like my Uncle Donnie does that, but he got hurt hunting bison four years ago. Yeah. What's your excuse? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, it was destroyed by a hurricane in 1724, and that's when the mission at the Alamo moved to its current location, where it still is at today. And this is across from the city of San Antonio proper, which at that time was called uh, the Via de Bexar, or Bejar, depending on your tongue of pronunciation. In 1731, some of the first European settlers uh, arrive from the Canary Islands, which was kind of like the first wave of Spanish colonization to the Canaries, which are close to Europe, but a little bit south. <laughs> Canary Island settlers, find coal mine. <laughs> <laughs> What's the headline? <laughs> so yeah, 15 families from the Canary Islands, Spanish families come to settle the surrounding lands of San Antonio. And the mission becomes a central point for many of the administrative systems of the province and led to quick prominence for the mission. And these missions in New Spain were basically run like a monastery in Europe, which is to say it was a little self-sufficient community of believers. It was a religious outpost in a sense. And as native people would convert to Catholicism, they would adopt the, you know, uh, economy of their colonial overlords and they would settle nearby. And that was the way that the system ran, basically. <clears throat> that's the reason so, that's the reason to get them to believe what you believe. Yeah. So they'll start farming for you. Yeah. So they start acting right. Mm hmm. Bingo. And with that, the mission did subtly expand. By 1744, there were over 300 Indian converts residing at the Alamo mission. And then several more missions were established downriver. There's actually uh, like a river walk along the San Antonio River that connects like five of these uh, historic missions together. Which, if I ever go to this shithole state of Texas, I plan to... That's the one thing I'm going to do. I'm going to go to San Antonio. I'm going to walk the river walk and see all the missions. That'd be kind of cool. I think it would. So what was the economy like for this little mission? Um, In 1744, they had actually over 2,000 head of cattle that were controlled by this Alamo mission. Over 1,300 sheep. And every year they were churning out over a thousand bushels of corn, over a hundred bushels of beans, and also that lucrative cash crop that was becoming big at the time, cotton. Sugarcane was the first <clears throat> big cash crop, but cotton came a little bit well, later. I was going to say, you can't grow sugarcane in this area. No, but you can grow cotton up here. Uh, so... <clears throat> In 1745, uh, you know, one of the reasons that this was an area that was difficult to colonize and settle was because when you did, 
all of the other indigenous people who were leading the fun lifestyle, you know, riding around on horses now, yeah. hunting bison, moving around. Living right. Living right. They would just come and they would like take all your shit, right? Yeah. They would just come, they'd laugh at you. And good on you know. them. They'd be like, <laughs> right. <laughs> who the fuck are these idiots? Yeah. Check it out. These guys are trying to like build houses and stuff. Yeah. You know, you find a bunch of cows outside just wandering around, and you're just like, well, these are, we're going to take these. Fuck yeah. We're going to take them. Check it out, man. Look at all these free animals I've never seen. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was a problem. Check it out. They're like mini bison. Yeah. Well, and that's also why, um, because all of the, you know, indigenous people were living around the mission, that was also where all the goods were kept, and that's why. That became the focal point, not the Presidio, not the actual fort, but the mission. So the mission had to be defended. And in 1745, the over 300 Indian converts who were there actually did fend off an Apache attack. So basically, these 300 converted Indians saved like everyone in Villa de Bejar from the Apaches in 1745. Now, there's another reason that the Presidio. What do you was mean saved them, though? I mean, if. Uh, Were the Apaches just going to come in and murder everyone? Well, a lot of people, when the Apaches would come raiding, the European settlers would often fall back to the fortified point, which was the mission. Yeah. And um, presumably they also fought, but. You know, what the history record tells us is that the Mission Indians, these 300 Indians who were living there, fended off the Apaches in this in this attack. I'm just saying, say they didn't fend them off successfully. What were the Apaches going to do? I don't know. They they might have they might have killed everybody for all I know. Um, Or they might not have. They might have just taken some beans, taken some horses. Yeah, I feel like I feel like that probably matters. Yeah. Yeah. But of course that's not the type of thing that, you know, history records. It makes everything seem way more dramatic and you know, tight butthole yeah, you than know, it like, actually was. Like the plains natives, they when they would battle, they wouldn't like battle to the death or whatever. They would count coup. They would be like Right. I gotcha. You get to live, but like, you know. Mm-hmm. I yeah. I would have killed you. Yeah, so we don't really know. You're right. We don't really know what they would have done, but um, a large raiding party was scared away. Because even uh, like the the nomad, the nomadic tribes, they get like portrayed as scalpers and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. the only reason that the natives were scalping was like retribution for the settlers starting it, right? Yeah. I mean, it was a cycle of violence that yeah. got spooled and then up. it just turned into, like, white hysteria, basically. Oh, definitely. Like, these, yes. they learned to do that thing that we learned to do. Mm-hmm. Bingo. Yeah. <clears throat> um, tease, tease our future series, okay? What? <laughs> the, uh, that's actually very much what we're going to look at when we take it to africa in our next series oh okay yeah all right so we'll finish up by just talking a little bit about this mission at the alamo 
at San Antonio because the Alamo was a nickname. Basically, everyone was like, oh, it's the Cottonwood. It's the mission with all the Cottonwoods because they didn't want to say the Missione de San Antonio de Valero. So they just they were just like, it's the Alamo mission. But at this time, it was the San Antonio de Valero mission. Now, we're going to actually... The, the first permanent building, which still stands today, by the way, was an L-shaped two-story residence, which were, was where the priests lived at this Alamo. And this would become the edges of the small inner courtyard, which you can still see if you go to the Alamo today. And this is basically where the long barracks are, just to the north and west of the chapel, which we now associate with the Battle of the Alamo primarily. These were like an adobe barracks. So again, we're building with mud here, right? We're building with like packed mud and dirt, clay. Uh, They were essentially built around to house Indian converts and essentially like a barracks-like setup. It also had a textile workshop for some of that cotton they were manufacturing. It wasn't until 1758 that they actually began working on a permanent chapel at the south end of that courtyard using four-foot-thick limestone blocks. A nice four-foot-thick block, good for sheltering behind when bullets are flying at you, by the way. Definitely. Uh, Yeah. These were quarried nearby and hauled to the site. And interestingly, the chapel was intended to be three stories and topped with a nice little dome, nice little dome effect with a bell tower on either side. But uh, they ran out of money, so they never finished it. (laughs) And as we're getting into the later 1700s, this is a big problem for New Spain and the Catholic Church as well. You know, the reason that they were doing all this shit at the Alamo was because the Presidio was chronically understaffed and underfunded. They couldn't keep military officers there because they couldn't pay them their salaries. And even at the mission at the Alamo, they started this church in the 1750s and basically built on it like slowly for 20 years and then just never finished it. The bell tower, the dome, the third story, they never even began construction on any of that. So basically when you think about the chapel at the Alamo, You're thinking about an entryway to a church and then just like an open space behind it that would have been the chapel. So this wasn't even a church. They had a they had a battle at a construction site. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way of thinking about it. Um So in seventeen fifty eight, because of, you know, these raids from the Apaches, eight foot walls were erected around the Indian homes. And much of the site. And um, it was around this time that a nearby mission at San Saba was actually destroyed in a Comanche raid. So they did destroy the mission. So we can at least note that. Or at least that's what history says. Did they kill everyone, though? I don't know. I mean, property damage? Pretty sure we don't really care that much about that. Yeah. But yeah, so these walls that they built were two foot thick. And basically enclosed an area that was roughly 150 meters long, north-south, and about 50 meters wide, east-west. And that north-south side, or that (laughs) north-south length, ran along the San Antonio River, which lay just to the west 
of the Alamo. Now, it's in this time period that they start essentially fortifying this even more by adding cannons. In 1762, three cannon were installed by the main gate to the mission. And in 1793, you had an additional cannon and a rampart installed in the center of the complex. So you could, like, arch artillery fire out of there if you wanted to. See, you just don't see them putting artillery in churches anymore. Yeah, you know, things have really slid a long way in this country when we don't even have uh, fucking howitzers in our chapels. Well, you know what I think? I think we need to make church great again. (laughs) I agree. (laughs) I would go more often if I could play with a howitzer. (laughs) We've got the strongest church. (laughs) So, but you'll also recall that last time we talked a little bit about the bourbon reforms, which in an effort to save on money as, you know, New Spain finds us getting outstripped by the 13 colonies, now the United States of America, but also France, England. They got to they gotta scrimp, and they got to find a place to, to tighten their yeah, belts. And... You know, they just weren't being quite awful enough. Right. And uh, they were getting... Uh, yeah, that's it. <laughs> pretty much. I mean, they had people talking about you know, yeah. uh, getting rid of slavery. They had relaxive slave policies, so they were getting their asses kicked. <laughs> you know? Keep that in mind when mm-hmm. you, the average Home Depot worker, gets told that you're going to have to compete with slaves in Indonesia. Right. Because it's coming back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the Bourbon reforms uh, limited the power of the Catholic Church, and basically... Uh, administrators in new spain sought to decrease decrease the influence of the missions so like in 1778 the governor of the province of texas declared that all unbranded cattle were the property of the state government holy fuck right holy shit right i mean could you imagine like you're like a dude (laughs) even if you were like planning to brand but you'd like been putting it off (laughs) dude okay (laughs) <laughs> that is how you piss off a whole lot of people uh, yeah yeah i didn't even like <laughs> i didn't even consider well, it, that that could be an idea that someone might have right well they're the the state is saying how are we going to recoup our, our money yeah hey if that cattle that cow doesn't and have everyone a that it. has a cow is thinking how the fuck do i get enough guns to murder these government people that are going to try to come steal my livelihood well worse still in 1778 the apache had stolen all of the mission's horses from san antonio so they couldn't round up and quickly brand their cattle so instead they're just all the state's cattle now (laughs) because you don't have horses um and by 1793 only from the height of 300 Indian converts, you had only about like 15, 20 people still hang, actual converts hanging around the Alamo mission. And so basically what happened in 1793 with the Bourbon reforms was that the mission was secularized and then abandoned. 
they stripped everything that was valuable out of there and then they left it for the dust took out all the copper wire and then left it for the red tag people yep and that's where we'll pick up next time on forget about the alamo an abandoned mission um and uh the biggest cattle roundup that new spain had seen just uh <laughs> a real contemporary story huh i mean it is it, in many ways i think it is you know uh and what's going to be the main source of conflict between the Spanish citizens of Texas and the new American citizens of Texas who are going to be coming over in the next 20, 30 years in our story. It's slavery because all these Americans are bringing slaves and property rights. It sounds like, yeah, definitely. Yeah. The two go hand in hand, right? Dude, I think we're going to have an Alamo two for real. And it's going to be, Colorado versus California. Oh shit. And they're literally going to have a battle next to a cottonwood tree. <laughs> on the on the Colorado River? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's going to be New Vegas, man. It's going to be, you know, the Hoover Dam, right? Oh yeah. Fighting for control. All that water and that power. <laughs> no one man should have all that water. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, dude, New Vegas, it, it, they really did nail the political economy of the Southwest more than anything. I think oh, that's yeah. why it's a great game. I still can't believe that you've never played that game before. Yeah. Listeners, I downloaded New Vegas, Fallout New Vegas, for $10 on Steam. I've been telling James been how this is it. like basically my favorite game for a decade, and he finally decided to check it out. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, it, it's what can i say jared's right I thought, hashtag jared was right well i thought you called me to like talk nostalgia about fallout new vegas i had no idea you were calling me to tell me that you were just now first playing fallout new yeah. vegas so i'm excited yeah. for you it's good well this series has inspired me basically they don't make yeah. them like that no more yeah definitely not man um you know the, the nice thing is, is on my uh, gaming PC, since it's an old game, it runs on ultra high quality. Oh, and of then course. It also, the, the, the loads are just lickety split. Like I, load, I can tr- fast travel around oh, really yeah. quick. Come a long way so. from playing fucking Morrowind on an Xbox. I know. Holy <laughs> fuck, dude. <laughs> minute and Those a half loading load screens. Fucking minute and a half loads. Oh, yeah. fuck. I didn't want to go in there. Go back out. Oh, no. I got to oh, wait no. another two minutes for this load screen. <laughs> Oh, now the fucking, yeah, dude. Now the ordinator killed me. I got to wait five minutes to load the game back <laughs> in. Yeah, Fallout New Vegas. It's a strong recommend. Yeah. You know what? When I get done with it, whenever I beat it, I don't know when that'll be. We'll review it on the podcast. Hell yeah. Okay. We'll do a review. So I haven't played a video game forever. I feel like I need to get back into some New Vegas. Can't go wrong. I mean, it's literature. It's like reading Melville. Yeah. All right. Well, that seals it. I'm going to go back into Costanza mode at work and, like, (laughs) try to only do, like, noticeable (laughs) things that take very little time and then, like, pretend to be busy the rest of the time. Yeah. I think I can pull it off. And then play New Vegas. (laughs) 
<laughs> Definitely. All right. Well, this has been Compost Bin of History. I have to pee very bad. Write us an email. James will tell you about that. I am signing off. Our email address is compostbinofhistory at gmail.com. I want to thank my co-host, Jared, for his excellent co-hosting. And I want to thank all of you for listening today. Hope you have a wonderful tomorrow. Happy painting. And God bless. Thank you.